Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash Wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash Wondery, code Wondery. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome to the Nerdist Podcast number 689. Today's episode is brought uh, This episode of the podcast is Jim Norton. If you uh, check out jimnorton.com, you can check out – that's where you would see his, uh, his newest special will be there, his tour dates, is more. Jim is returning. And when, was the, when was Jim on last time? Like two years ago? Was, two years ago, yeah. Two years ago, I think. Could we were at Meltdown for it. Yeah. I can't believe that was two years ago. Right? Yeah, it was Where's the time going? I don't know. It's flying away from us, Kyle. It's when I learned that Chess the Musical was a thing. I always thought One Night in Bangkok was a Falco song before that. No! <laughs> It was performed by it was performed by Murray Head, yeah. brother of Anthony oh. Head, who played Giles on Buffy. I know all that now, but come on, you can see how I somehow could have thought that that's a Falco song. Oriental City, mother city, don't know. <laughs> Falco was Austrian for Christ's sake. I mean, but they can sing about other places. Yes, but wouldn't it be like Bangkok, Oriental City, about the city town? That's know? not that far off from what you just did. <laughs> Bangkok, Oriental City. All I know is that we clearly need to put you in a version of Chess the Musical out there. Right now. Oh, God, I would see that. All right, we're going to run do that. Here's Nurse Podcast number 689 with Jim Norton. Returns! Katie, do the thing. Now entering Nerdist.com. I haven't seen you in, in not a suit in a long time. This is, this is my normal wear. Yeah. Just t-shirts, t-shirts. I'm, I apologize for being late. It's okay, I, buddy. I finished the last podcast and I had to go put contacts in because my eyes were killing me. Yeah, and no problem. Six months in, I'm still not good at it. It takes me ten fucking minutes. Are you only doing it six months? Yeah, I've only been doing it about six months and it takes me ten minutes. My left eye, no problem. My right eye does not like the contact Yeah, lens. I dealt with it for years. What, did you get surgery? I did eventually get surgery, yeah. I've had it, and I kind of need contacts again, I think. Or would you just get surgery again? Is that, is that enough? Nah, my left eye has this, a thing in it I from an injury, so I don't even know if I can get it the second time. They almost didn't do it the first time. But it worked out okay. D- yes. Is it true that you... Someone said, oh, you just go blind for like a second. I'm like, nah, it's a second too long. I'd flip. Um, yeah, you, you actually... It, it goes black, and you know what they're doing because they tell you they're folding down your eye, the outside of your eye. You feel pressure. It doesn't hurt. But it is very, very odd. You hear like duck, 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 duck. It sounds like machinery, and that's them correcting your eye. It's a very odd experience. They won't only do both at the same time. They won't do one. They won't do one and the other. It's always both at the same time. 
Did they put you on Valium or something to chill you out? Oh, or? yeah, yeah, you're on something. You're, you're, and plus you have drops in your eyes and, uh, you know, they prepare you for it. And I knew so many guys that have done it. I'm like, I'm going to be okay. Yeah. But I still see halos around at night. They told me that could be a side effect, and it was. If I'm driving, I see a street lamp. I'll see like a halo of light around the street lamp. Oh, wow. You can't, and that's never gone away. So, uh, well, you know, uh, Jim, that's where, uh, that's where angels are. Yeah, that's what I always tell myself. <laughs> it's just an angel. It's not that doctor I want to smash in the mouth. <laughs> How's everything? How, what, what are some big changes that have happened since last time you were on the podcast? Um, I, it's been like a year and a half. I mean, the Opie and Anthony show broke up. I would say they that did, was, They did yeah, break up. Yeah, that was a big deal. That was a big one, man. I'm, are I, you tired of talking about that, or have you talked about it No, all? I don't mind. I mean, it was, uh, I've talked about it, but it's like then those guys, six months ago, I got fired for those tweets. Um, so that was the breakup was Anthony's firing. Right. And then they were both continuing on their own way. And it started to get like a little, little tensions. Like Opie would say something over Twitter or Ant would respond. And neither one of them were trying to hurt the other one. They just, sometimes you say shit. And when both people are on guard, you interpret something somebody else is saying as a possible. So I think both of them started going, huh, what does that mean? Huh, what does that mean? And then the tweets got a bit more direct and the shots fired were a bit closer to each other. Right. And then, um, you know, I, I think Anthony finally said something on his show and Opie responded. And somebody compared me to the kid Billy in Kramer vs. Kramer <laughs> watching, my, <laughs> watching my parents fight. But it wasn't that uncomfortable. I mean, I know those guys had tension behind the scenes. So, I mean, uh, I was okay with it. I'm, I'm, I'm so used to conflict that them arguing or whatever, I could sit there and be okay with it. Yeah. I felt bad because I love both those guys, but... You know, it wasn't like, oh my god, what do I do to stop it? Right. I just kind of sat there and it just and, sit back out of the way. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not that codependent. Where I'm gonna try to fix it. It's like let them emotionally vomit. Did you, oh, and for lack of a better term, get a promotion on the show? No, I didn't want one. Um, I got a raise, but I get a raise every couple years. Whenever we go back for contracts, I've always gotten a little bit bump, and this bump was exactly ten percent more than I would have normally gotten. So okay. a slight raise, but not some giant jump in money. Right. And um. I certainly didn't get Anthony's money, and they're not calling it. They call it Opie with Jim Norton when, like, on the on the pad data, but uh, the show is just Opie Radio. Call it. I don't. I'm, I'm not jumping in Anthony's grave, and I've been saying I, I didn't want it. I right. didn't want. I want it to be Opie and Anthony, where that, my job is third mic, and I can fire in lines when I want. Right. I don't want to be perceived as trying to replace Anthony Cumia because you just can't. So it's too funny. Would you uh, would you want to do your own show at some point? Yeah, you know it's funny. Rogan just asked me that too. I, I would do it because I enjoy performing, but it's like I like the the dynamics of a bunch of people in a room messing around. Yeah, I like that dynamic of uh, you know five. Like the other day we had on uh, you know uh, who we had we had Rich Voss in all day. And we had uh, then Louis came in for a while, and we had an astronaut come in. This guy Chris Haddonfield. Yeah, Chris ha- Chris Hadfield. Yeah, he's oh, been on the podcast. Oh, he's, he's, he's fucking amazing, a, Canadian. A yeah, brilliant guest. And Louis just stayed and was asking. You know, you, you, everyone's like a little kid around an astronaut. You just want to ask the spaceman questions. You know, we're all dopes <laughs> compared to him. So that dynamic of just guests asking other guests questions almost reminds me of British television, like Graham Norton. Like Graham Norton. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. Well, also. I, I can tell you from a lot of experience that uh, uh, when you are when you have to drive the show, you don't get to be as funny because you have to keep the show on track. Yep. 
you know? So when people comment, you know, on Reddit or other, like, you're the least funny person on the show, I go, yeah, I know, because I got to keep the show on track. You know, like, you got to, you got to drive the machine. It's so much, it's so much, it's so much fun to just like, oh, I can just lob in shit whenever I feel like it. That's exactly what it is, man. And I like being able just to fire in lines. If I want to check Twitter, I can, because Opie's talking to us. It's, it's a much more relaxed thing. But when you feel like when it's all on your shoulders, like, okay, I have to, I'm so concerned now with what everybody else is saying. Is this interesting what you're saying? Is this interesting what you're saying? But if I'm just, you know, firing in lines, I don't care if everybody else is bombing their faces off or boring <laughs> the audience. It means nothing to me. What are you doing in Los Angeles right now? Just promotion just and promoting. I go home tomorrow. I got a special coming out next, the 24th of uh, April. It comes out um, on Epics and um, Netflix three months after that. So I'm just out doing promotion. Are you happy with it? I'm very happy with it. Good. Yeah, I'm happier with this than anything I've ever shot before. I like my pace and my cadence in this one. I feel relaxed in it, and I defend Anthony, and I kind of I just like where it went. What do you think has changed since your first special? Um, I'm less needy. I think you know what I mean. Like you get less needy as a performer. Sure. Like, I'm more comfortable in my opinions. I'm more comfortable being funny. I'm more relaxed on stage. You know, uh, I, I just feel like I'm a better comedian than I was then. You know what I mean? I'm, I, I'm talking about like I, I talk about fucking a little bit in this because I'm dirty. Sure. Um, I do a bit on another strap on bit. It's amazing. I've closed two out of my last three specials with true strap on stories. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> you know how awful that is. That they're both true. Well, I mean, you know, your 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 brain is obviously trying to express something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> in the strap on. Yeah, I, I, both of them are true, and both of them happen on opposite sides of the country. And uh, you know, it's like I like talking about this stuff because I like exposing myself. Yeah, that's part of the fun of stand up. It's like you just get to say things that no accountant could walk into his office and say. No lawyer could walk into his his little office and talk about the things that we can. And that's just what's so fun fun about this job. It's good, yeah. But you know, we there's also it there is a there there is a sharper side to the blade these days, though. Like if things you say get taken out of context or whatever, and you. But I yeah. guess it doesn't. But for you, though. You, I feel like you could pretty much say whatever you want because it's just kind of the – that's the persona that you've crafted is that you – I feel like you could get away with saying anything because you're like, yeah, fuck you. This, this is who I am. Yeah, I mean it depends. Like there's certain things – like I was attacking online anonymity and people were like, what, just so we can get fired like Anthony? It's like, yeah, but I say things as myself and it's my job so I have leeway. But I have to watch what I say. Like, you know what I mean? I mean, not that I want to say racial things about the president, but if I went on some racist tirade about the president and was dropping in, I'd get fired. Right. The whole business would shun me. You know what I mean? So it's not like, you know, as a comedian, I have zero rules and everybody else can. So, you know, that's why I was kind of attacking the online. And because I kind of have to face, I hate to say face music, <laughs> but I bash Steve Martin in my book. And uh, it was something I regretted, actually. I was too harsh on him. The book wasn't from an angry point of view. And I wish I hadn't done it. What did you say? I, I was making fun of him for doing the Pink Panther because I really think that that role should never have been touched. That was uh, Peter Sellers. Of and, course. But um, I, I, I should have come from a place of somebody who really admires Steve Martin. And he's made me laugh for many years. The book was called I Hate Your Guts. And uh, it wasn't all well, about him. I was angry when I just got fired. So I wrote a lot of angry things. And certain people I was unfair to. I was unfair to Hillary Clinton. I was unfair to Steve Martin. And I regretted that for a while. Um, but he called me out on it when I met him. Like um, I was doing a Tonight Show piece at the Emmys asking him to like – the joke was I was going to try to get someone to hold up my CD when they accepted them. You know, there's always a point to those. Yeah. 
So when he saw it, he goes, Jim Norton, you said some unkind things about me in your book. And I was like, oh, I'm <laughs> such a dick. <laughs> and, but by then, I had legitimately felt bad about it. I had talked about it on the radio. And so I apologized to him. Um, and, I, and I meant it, though. It wasn't like I was in trouble apologizing. Yeah. They didn't even air that part. But I was like, I'm sorry. And he's like, oh, you're forget." He was very nice about it. But I had to have that embarrassing moment because I shot my fat mouth off sure. as Jim Norton. Yeah. He found out about it, and he called me on it. I mean, you're talking about accountability. It's just like mo- most people are not accountable for anything that they say anymore. And in certain cases, you know, anonymity can be a good thing to protect people if there are things that they legitimately need to protect for their welfare, <laughs> yeah, you know, for their – but um, – but but there is a thing that has emerged which uh, I, I call weaponized in an anonymity where people use it as a weapon where they're basically like, I'm going to say whatever I want and you know I'm going to basically attack everyone and that's not using it to protect your community. That's just <laughs> using it to, to create sadness and chaos and I, and I don't you know I don't know if that's really uh, great. That's a great way to put it. Weaponized anonymity. It's really smart because like I understand that like if you're if you're a cop and you hate the mayor, you think he stinks and he's messing with police uh, pensions, it's hard to go on and go, "Hey, you know, I'm Officer Norton and I hate this mayor because that's what my police captain I think is corrupt or these are things that could really legitimately hurt your job and I think anonymity in those cases, we get it. You know, but there are times, like you say, where people are just attacking other people and they're not trying to use anonymity because they think there's going to be a real penalty. They just like the idea that they can say whatever they want and have zero. Uh, and they got mad at me on Reddit the other day. They're like, what would you be mad if they say complimentary things to you? That's how come that's not invalid? And it's because, well, the difference is they would say that to my face. Right. They're not trying to say something that they wouldn't say if they met me. Um, you know, people come up and go, hey, good job or whatever. But no one has ever walked up and said, hey, I'm so-and-so from the message board or the Twitter. It's more Twitter than anything. Because uh, there's people who I've met who I've known who their, their uh, message board names were on this old Opie and Anthony show. And they didn't know I knew. And I knew the stuff they used to say about me. And they were so friendly when we met. And I was always just completely cold to them and I never let them know why and this one girl who I still see today and uh, it's years and she has no idea why I won't acknowledge her I, it's so great she's in the room interacting with everyone and I will not acknowledge that there's a human being talking or sitting next to me because I know who she is and she's, what not, she's, she's not being consistent she's not being consistent you wanted to come and motherfuck me that's cool but then don't just be nice to me right you know but then again I got called out on it and I had to deal with the but you dealt with it and you apologize and that's you know in, in a, in a yeah. civilized culture that's what should happen hey you know what I said a thing and if you still felt that way you still have the right to go you know what um, I feel that way but uh, you know I'm not trying to be a di- I mean I feel like there are ways to express discourse without because I think people when people go when people say the worst thing they can think of and then they get mad at you because you can't take you know being criticized right. like well that's not I can't do anything with that you're just sure. spewing hate you know and, and I think like the, the day the, the couple days after my dad died some dude on Twitter was saying really awful things about my dad being dead and, and it was just and that's where I fe- that's where I really started to feel like you know maybe everyone shouldn't be <laughs> I mean that's not because I just feel like if he had any accountability at all then he wouldn't have been able to make fun of my dad being dead. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, he wouldn't do that. And, and that, to me, I, I just feel like, and I don't know if this is a popular opinion, maybe not, 
I feel like that's cowardly. It's cowardly to take shots, like to to take those kinds of shots and know that you don't have to be accountable for it. That's not brave. Yeah, and it's not always they 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 raise that you're absolutely right. It is cowardly. And the cowardly thing is because you're not saying things that are always gonna get you like you can go on Twitter and tell Jim Norton that he sucks. What do you think your boss is gonna fire you for that? No. Jim, I don't think you're funny. I don't like your act. I think that the show stinks since Anthony All of those are fair opinions. I've been told all that stuff. But if you tell me as your name, no one's going to fire you for that. So don't lie and say you're scared of losing your livelihood. No, you're not. <laughs> you're not scared of it because, you, again, you're not – this is not the Chinese government. You know, you can tell Jim Norton he stinks and no employer will care. <laughs> they, they, do you know what I mean? A lot will be inclined to agree with you. They just want to do it, like you said, without any account – without having people look at them and go like, wow, you thought that or you said that to somebody. Their father died and you went after him and made fun of him. Everything I said in my book, some of which I regret, I have to be accountable for. I said it, and I just got to deal with the embarrassment. Because, like, Steve Martin a, is, a, is a very powerful guy in our business. Now, I don't think it's hurt my career at all. But, I mean, like, that is a guy who could have hurt me if he wanted to. He, he absolutely could have some influence on things I do. Hey, I had to take that chance, you know? I don't regret bashing Al Sharpton. I don't regress, regret bashing a lot of uh, political figures. Steve Martin, I do, and kind of hell I feel that. I don't know. I mean, this just because of the nature of that I get very busy and I only get shreds of things here and there. I don't exactly know what happened with Anthony. All, all the, the, the sort of um, what I was able to glean from the little bits of the news is that he went on some kind of rant and it was racial. And, but then I don't know what happened. I don't know if he was drunk or ill or if he was, I mean, I have no idea. I don't know. I just know that like something serious happened but I just didn't devote time to learning what it was because I weeks go by and I yeah. all of a sudden I'm like, oh my god, it's the middle of 2015, just because my days are so sure, crazy. sure, sure. Anthony was in uh, Times Square one night late. It was probably three o'clock in the morning, and I didn't find this out till the next day. My ex texted me, and again, he he's, he became a photography buff in studio. Even he had a camera, and he was just photographing everything. And uh, so he was out one night taking pictures, and he was taking a picture, and there was a black woman walking away. And he, and he showed other pictures from that night. He had caught white people in photo. He was just doing that. And he wasn't being creepy or taking an upskirt shot. And I guess she heard the click of the camera and got mad and came back. And she said something to him. And, and he took a couple of photos as she was coming back angry. But that wasn't the original picture. And she's like, you white motherfucker. They started arguing. And she punched him in the face. And she hit him. He says between eight and ten times, he said he just put his arm up and kind of defended himself. And he says some black guys came out, and then she kept, oh, this is what he said she kept doing too. Like, as she's hitting him, he's got his arm up, and she's like, don't touch me, don't touch me, almost like putting him in a position where people are going to gather around. And then people came and watched, and of course he wasn't touching her. So he went home, and he said that he, uh, I guess he just freaked out. You know, he, and he started tweeting, this savage attacked me and blah, blah, blah. And he, he didn't, you know, he didn't drop the N-bomb, which is, you know, the ultimate. He didn't say that. But he tweeted about 10 or 15 things in a row, which when you look at it, you're like, oh, I wish you hadn't said that one right after that one. Right. Like, that would have been, <laughs> like, that would have been cool if it was a few days later. But, but I understood in the moment. And he showed me a photo of his face. Like, he really was attacked. Um, it, it was just certain things were ill-advised, but I didn't think he should have been fired for them. The reason he got fired, and this is where I, what I attack in the special, is the press in our country is so predictable. They take the angle of shock jock says mean things instead of guy is punched in the face and, and shows a nonviolent reaction. Because Anthony has a gun. He always carries a gun. He didn't pull. He's, he was allowed to. He didn't pull his gun. He didn't hit her back. He took the physical assault. 
and went home. And the worst thing he did was tweet about it. Like, you know, it's just the opposite of the way you're raised, where you're taught that your actions are important and what you say means nothing. But now it's your actions are irrelevant and what you say means everything. So they were calling the company. The Washington Post wrote that the Washington Post. The, 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 I, I mean, I understand there's media bias. But I read what she wrote, this woman, and she was like, and if these guys wanted to come around and make sure that this woman was okay, they were right. It's like she, she was assaulting him. And this woman, because it didn't match the narrative she wanted it to match, couldn't even write a straightforward editorial about it. And Ant's been very, look, Anthony's really far right with his opinions, and that rubs a lot of people the wrong way. And I get that. That's fine. But uh, I think Ant's mistake was the next morning he just went full bore into it. And I think that those tweets he should have taken down faster. Um, I think he should have just told them truth, the truth. Like, look, I was assaulted. I fucked up. I was upset about it. And I tweeted a lot of angry things in a row. And I think that that's a mistake that we, any one of us could make. Because um, it, it sounds like, well, why, why would he do that? But I've been in situations like where I've been in an armed robbery before. And uh, I had a pistol pulled. And in that moment, you're in shock. You're, you, you, you can't say anything. I remember when the guys ran out of the restaurant that I was in. I mean, literally, there was a guy pointing a gun at me and my girlfriend with my hands up. And he runs out, and I just, you don't think. You're like, okay, I didn't see anything. I don't see anything. Even when the cops come, you're still scared. You, you can't. And then you thaw out a little while later. And that's why I understood why it took him a half hour or 40 minutes to tweet something. Um, so he was fired. And uh, I'm not saying the press shouldn't have talked about it. I'm not saying it wasn't a, a legit story, but I just thought that the angle they took was so predictable. It's like when Jonah Hill, you know what I mean? He's uh, some paparazzi scumbag is stalking him, and no one criticizes the paparazzi. They go after Jonah, same as Alec Baldwin. They torture this guy just to get a reaction, and nobody says, wow, the paparazzi are scumbags. They're vultures. It's always, wow, look at the naughty actor. He yelled something. So kind of that's, that's what happened with Ant and... Uh, you know, it's a shame. It's a real shame. Because, and I've been very defensive of, of Anthony. And again, you can hate what he said. That's fair. People who said, like, oh, wow, man, that borderline race, cool. That's fine. But at least he should get credit for the nonviolent reaction because that got lost in the story. Penn Jillette wrote a really beautiful thing about it. Um, you know, because, you know, Penn's pretty, he's a smart dude. And I don't remember what he said, but it was, it was well thought out. And do you, uh, it, you know, what's interesting is when we start doing comedy, <clears throat> you, you're just used to like, eh, no one really gives a shit about what I say. Yeah. And then there's that point where you've been doing it long enough and all of a sudden people start to give a shit what you say, you know, like you become very accountable. And I think, you know, my guess is that's kind of one of the things that freaked out Chappelle a little bit. It was like, oh, we've been operating below the radar for so long. Right. And now everyone's watching and it's like he almost it's like, do I have a social responsibility to say or not say certain things because people might take them wrong or do I, you know, all the second guessing right. and it's strange and it's, you know, all of a sudden be under the spotlight, you know, in a lot of cases, especially if, a, if something a comic says blows up, they're very confused because they're like, this isn't anything different than the shit that I've been saying for years. And now all of a sudden. Everyone's like, why are you saying this? You know, right. It's like, oh, I don't know. This, I, uh, I'm just, I don't know what I've been doing. I don't know. I'm sorry. I don't, why are people mad now? Like a lot of times comics are very confused when it flips. Yeah. Well, it's not even, but look at that publicist who tweeted that dumb thing about going to Africa. She was just going to Africa and she's like, I hope I don't get AIDS. Oh, that's right. I'm white. I won't. Remember that girl? Yeah, of course. And, and by the time she lands, the whole, it's almost like the entire country is in an outrage 
of what some person said trying to be funny. Like, is that all we have to focus on? It's what some dumbbell says in a moment trying to be fun. Like, who gives a shit? It's such an unimportant thing as opposed to, you know, like everyone we elect to office is a pig. Every pol- everyone, ideology doesn't matter. They're all liars and, and self-serving and thieves and they, none of them look out for it. And that we kind of accept. But some <laughs> publicist makes a joke and we're like, what the fuck? Something must be done. Yeah, I mean, Jesus. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to have the guy on who wrote the book all about her. She was one of the subject of this book. This guy, John Ronson, wrote a okay. book. It was all about public shaming. Oh. And, and it's all about pitchforking and, and that sort of thing. I mean, I, I think there are certain things that people say that I do think they should be sure. held accountable for and, you know, sh- shamed to a degree. But, you know, with, with something – with some stupid with – with a dumb joke, I don't think the rest of someone's life should be ruined. Like right. have we really lost the ability to forgive people for making dumb human statements and not go, hey, what you said was really fucking stupid and, you, and, and hopefully you know you, were, you, you shouldn't have said that. But let's hug it out. Don't do it again. Like we don't forgive in this country. We just want to fucking – we just want to destroy people, like destroy their lives and salt the earth. We love it. We love doing it. And people got so mad at me when I talked about how the NSA, I loved what they were doing. People, oh, <laughs> they got, because I think people didn't quite, they're like, you know, because I was saying that we're a nosy, piggish culture and we can't get our faces out of each other's living rooms. So when the NSA spies on your emails, good motherfuckers, that's what you deserve for being people who don't respect each other's privacy. And people <laughs> like, wait, you don't point. understand the difference between the government and, and TMZ? Of course I do. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I get the difference. <laughs> they, they think I'm making a literal comparison like TMZ is the government. Or the, the government is TMZ. I got it. But the point, you know, it's almost like a, a, a privacy should be something that we value so much that we don't let TMZs of the world get away with that shit because it's disgusting and it violates a principle that we hold dear. And then when the government does it, the penalty should be a, a, a vicious penalty from the public. But I think that we bring it on ourselves because we don't respect it in each other. We don't yeah. respect each other's right to be private or to, to be sexual or to be anything. Man, as soon as it's exposed, we can't get enough of it. Well, with, with paparazzi culture and, and, and having done a lot of red carpety stuff like i've met there's a lot of really nice photographers sure there's a handful of evil ones yeah i haven't met any of the evil ones i've only met really nice ones but you know i think it's interesting how people th- the public doesn't ever see anything as, as sort of black and white you know they go well you know uh whatever you know Lindsay lohan that's what she signed up for you know like she fucking deserves it you know but if if those same photographers started taking a bunch of pictures of just a regular person going to work, they would be a huge deal. Or if the or if the photographers themselves, if someone started, you know, like stalking them, they would freak the fuck out. Like it's it's interesting that that people are able to justify go, well, no, it's fine for the for this group. Right. They deserve it. But just don't do this. It's like, well, but they're the same. How are they different? I don't understand how the, how it's different. You sign up for a certain amount of, of public Not being uh, interaction, stalked, right. of course. Yeah, or if you're on the beach and you're in a relationship with another celebrity. Yeah, you did sign up for that. But did Steve Croft from 60 Minutes when he's doing the news for 40 years sign up to have his private text messages printed in the New York Post? Like, no, he didn't. Like, he, you know, because he was texting, sexting this girl. He was having an affair and he's sexting this girl. And it's printed in the post because that's salacious. And it's like, really? Did he sign up for that? Had to have privacy violated like that? It's a, it was, he was a terrible but fucking do, dirty but talker. But I do think part of it, too, um, is that 
people know that they have their own crimes that they're guilty of. I mean, everyone, sure. me, you, Kyle, okay, like we are all hypocrites to a degree. Yeah. All of us. We all expect a standard from other people that we don't sure. always hold ourselves up to because we're the exception. Yes, I want a faithful girlfriend, and you know, I've proven myself <laughs> as a, <laughs> someone who cannot do that. Yeah. <laughs> but it is, you know, it, 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 it's just the, it's, we need to be able to remember that that everyone is human and that we should forgive people for being human. And when these type of things blow up, when this guy's texts or whatever, you know, even if you think it's rotten, there's still a certain – I think there's something in people that they are lashing out against themselves in a weird way and then taking a superior stance. They can go, look at this pathetic individual. How dare he? You know, and in a way, maybe they're lashing out at themselves or maybe they're trying to really hide their own stuff. Yeah. But it's not, it, you know, the, the, the response is, not, is, is usually way more severe in, the, in a lot of these cases than the crime. You're absolutely right. And, and that's why when I talk about this stuff, it is a way of shaming yourself to a certain degree, like whatever, whether it was Mel Gibson or Tiger Woods or any of this prior or Sterling. I always try to talk about it and also tell whatever I can about myself that relates to it because I don't feel like a hypocrite if I do that. Like I make fun of Mel Gibson because he really was, you know, hilarious messages or Tiger's text messages. But I always make fun of my own text messages. Like, this is what I've said. This is what I do. So it's almost like I, I'll, I'll expose myself too. And if everyone did that, I would have no problem with it. Like, I, I'm cool with reading Steve Croft's dirty text messages because I got a phone full of them. And I'll right. tell you what they say and I'll admit the embarrassing sexual shit. I'll admit the fucking strap-on stories of transgenders. Not that the transgender are embarrassing, but you know what I mean. Right. Uh, just the stuff that's not commonly spoken about. Um, that's why I'm okay talking about it, you know, but I, I would just shame somebody else and know I do it. Like, how the fuck do people go home and feel good about themselves knowing, like Larry Craig, like, dude, you want to suck dick in a public bathroom? My hat comes off to you, but just don't legislate against gay people. Like, well, I think it's just that people always consider themselves the exception. Yeah. And, and, and it is the disturbing thing is, um, uh, that you know that a large percentage of the people that jump on the shame train, you know they've done way worse. You know that a lot of them have done way worse. Yeah. And it's like, just, you know, be consistent. You be know, consistent. be consistent. Like, it, I, I just don't know. Maybe it's just a function of the way our brains are. And, the, and it's just the way, it's just a human condition is that we are more likely to point the finger outward than, than inward. Well, it's like the old saying, you point one finger and three are pointing back at you. <laughs> God, it's physically the truth. So, but it, it's, it's very tempting to scold people because it does feel good to be in a better position than somebody and to, to legitimately have them in a, in a corner. And a cause, yeah. to have a cause. Like, I did, I did good for the culture today. Yeah, man. Because that fucking guy who was texting, I fucking look at look at me i'm so much better it drives me crazy you're jerking off in public right now i know but, <laughs> but i'm thinking of something healthy yes, i'm thinking I'm, of my wife but earlier <laughs> when you can make katie laugh that hard that's what i really that's <laughs> i don't know why it's so much fun for me like you you have become a benchmark on the podcast now katie like if something can make you laugh it delights me. It absolutely delights me. You're probably very jaded. You've heard a lot of a lot of people talking, especially second one of the. I hear you. You hear this just yapping all day. I mean, Katie. You know, like she produces a, a, most of our podcasts at Nerdist and all of this one. 
and listens to everything and sure. hears everything and sees everything and you know it's a it's a very it's it's very it's I it's almost she's almost achieved like uh like entertainment reporters critic status where it's like right. they've seen everything you know are they really the best person to tell you whether or not you should see a movie because they they watch movies differently than most people having do. seen everything yeah, having, yeah Katie has seen everything so when she laughs it's like hey. We surprise we surprise the queen. <laughs> she's she's really the heart and soul of the podcast over there, Katie Levine. Uh, you really you always have a project going too. I really I, I've used you as an example. You're always working, man. Like it, it's like you have at midnight. You got to talk. You're like you're always doing a bunch of the, the podcast. It's like fuck. I admire that a lot. The ability to do different projects and not just be stuck on one project. It's like, because I'm really good at starting things and concepts, and then I just go like, and I quit, and I run back into my sexual addiction. I'm on the line. <laughs> a fucking creep. I admire that, though. Like, oh, thanks, the man. The follow-through is great. There's just, uh, it's not easy to do. Well, it's, it's, it's you know, it, it, it's kind of fear-driven in a way of just, you know, having been un- unemployed for a long time, and then... When were you unemployed? From two, th- uh, I guess really from like 98 to 2001... And then from 2002, really until about 2007, you know, like 2002 to 2007. I mean, I was still doing stand-up at that right. time, but I was barely scraping by, you know, because people weren't coming out to show. So I was based, I mean, I was making the minimum of what you could make, you know. Right. And, um, and you know, like, like subsisting on a job here and there, you know, but it was very, it was very, it was very dicey. And so, you know, I think I just got to a place where I sort of looked at my career is like an investment portfolio and i'm like well you diversify a portfolio of st- and i'm not a stock guy but you diversify a portfolio of stocks so why wouldn't you do that with your career so that if you lose it's a, it's just a fear of putting too many eggs into one basket yeah because if you lose that basket then it's like fuck you know i hated that feeling of all or nothing i yeah. wanted it to be like Oh well, if I lose this, I still got this, and then I can fill that slot with something. And my attention span is that is such that it, this I, my a career is appropriate. No, but I like that. I like that. And 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 Corolla's good at that. He's got he's producing movies. He's directing. He's got his podcast. He's got the fucking sangria, whatever. And then you look at Rogan, who owns companies. He does UFC. He does stand up. He's got a great podcast. Like the I like the fact that you guys are doing all this different stuff. It motivates me a lot. I'm trying to do an animation this year um, of these characters I do on radio, and I, I've got like. Uh, I'm like actually doing it. I'm oh, really, that's great. But it's nice. It's like watching guys do all this stuff that succeeds. And it's like, I love doing stand up and I love doing radio, but it's like, I want to do other stuff. So it's kind of, it's just encouraging to watch. I think man. you'll get addicted to it when you, when you start to create things, like when you make this cartoon and then it becomes a physical manifestation of just an idea that you had, you'll, it'll really kind of like, whoa, hey, like you made something that didn't, I mean, stand. It's hard to really understand that that's what you do with stand-up because, you know, words are intangible in a way and you don't see them. But there really is something about seeing the physical result of a thing that was just a a synapse in your brain firing that I think you'll – I think you'll just start to do it more. Writing has done that for me. Like when I write – like I haven't written – I've written two books. Not not in years though. Like the second one was 2008 and it's like – it's been like – that's almost seven years ago. It's like I want to do another one but I just can't motivate myself to – 
pick a topic. You know, I was going to talk do one about relationships, like a parody of a relationship book. Because I remember my ex girlfriend was uh, she was on the toilet and she was shitting, and she was reading me the riot act while she was shitting, and she had no. I'm listening to her and I'm transcribing everything she's saying because her ability to brutalize me from the toilet. I'll never forget that she was fucking on on the money too, killing me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, it's one of my favorite things about you is that you, you know, I, I feel like you are, you're an equal opportunity. I mean, like, you are completely equal across the board in terms of, like, where your gun aims. Like, you can take shots at other people, but you will take just as hard a shot at yourself. Like, there's oh, no... There, it's it's not like I'm better than everyone else. It's like, uh, no, I'm shitty about these things. That guy's shitty about those things. Like you, you're really, it's you're, like you're a part of it. You're a part of it. Thanks, man. You're Thank not you. just firing shots from a from an ivory tower. No, not at all. It's not about like a guy like Dennis Leary. And not even to knock Dennis, but his act was always like that. Like this is what's wrong with the world, and and that was kind of who he was as a comedian, and it worked for him. I don't, I don't do it like that because I don't feel good looking or I don't feel like I could wear a leather jacket and be cool. You know what I mean? I feel like ugly and small. So I'm always attacking things from that place. Even you know, intellectually, yeah, 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 I know. Like, yeah, you're a normal dude. But you know how when you feel, it doesn't, yeah. doesn't matter what you fucking know. It's how you feel. So I'm always attacking things feeling like I'm just utter garbage so I can call you garbage. But uh, anyway, I was transcribing what she was saying, and it was really funny. And I, for some reason, the, then the book publisher who I'd worked with said, nah, other people do other relationship books. You should – and I just kind of veered away from it and then just got lazy and started doing a bunch of other stuff. And What was she, what was she on the money about? Like, I don't remember, to be honest with you. I have to even find the transcription. I just remember she was nailing me because uh, she, she was a Jersey City girl, and um, she was just – I forget what she was saying, but it was so good, and she was so mad – that I, was, I just had to write down everything she said. It was probably a full one-page document. Um, I don't remember. I wish I could remember. I just remember her going like, oh, she's fucking, she's killing me, man. <laughs> I, I didn't even rebut it. I was just listening to her and transcribing. I don't even ever told her that I did that. But she, she was very funny. Uh, I would write down things that she said all the time without telling her. Like I, everything she said, she said so many great, uh, she was brutally funny. Like, like she got to the guts of things. Really well. We were talking about somebody one time, and the guy had bad breath, and his breath was really dry. And she goes, Yeah, he's fucking creepy. He's got talking breath. <laughs> and I'm like, That's the greatest description of that awful breath I've ever heard in my life. You know what I mean? But you know exactly what she Absolutely. means. Absolutely. Someone who's been talking a lot, the way they're. And uh, so, like, she had the, the ability to do that, just to get to the guts of things. So, anyway, that made me want to write. I wanted to write a whole book about her, about our relationship and the funny shit she would say. Um, but then we wound up breaking up. And she's, I had dinner with her last night. She's still my probably closest friend because she moved out here. What is your? Uh, can you think of a? I mean, if there's a common thread in all of your relationships, you know, if there's a common thing, it could be about that, or it could be about, you know, if you make jokes about sexual addiction, you could tell stories from the point of view of that. You know, are are the lines blurred? Like, what is sexual addiction? How do you know? Like, what do you like? Maybe everything sort of comes back to that. I mean, like, if you looked at all your relationships, there's probably a common thread in all those, which could be the starting up from the from a point of view that you write from. Well, I do want to write that. It's funny you say that. I'm actually for the last six days or seven days now. I've been keeping a, a, a little log. I'm trying to, to break the addiction. I'm trying like to no pay for sex. 
not like dirty texting. That's a little bit harder, uh, like porn or masturbate. All these things I get caught up in so crazy. And like I'm like, okay, let's see what you're like without this stuff. Because I feel very blocked and walled off from people all the time. And I think a lot of that is I'm just behaving in such an addiction constantly. So I'm like, what is it like to not have that constant presence with you? So I'm five or six days in. And you know, last night going to bed, I was intriguing a little bit with some girl. Just intriguing. Nothing crazy. But I felt it start. I felt that fucking motor revving up. And I'm laying in bed. And I, wanted to, I didn't bring my other computer with me. I only have my good boy computer. Um, <laughs> I, I have two, two laptops. I have a good and a bad boy laptop. And the one I have with me, I can open without shame. <laughs> <laughs> On a plane, you can open it up. In front of anybody, yes. Do you know what it's like to open your, your laptop and have so many little folders? You're like, oh my God, what's the title of this one? What's the title of that one? Oh my God, my search history. Uh, you know, if I open up that email, is the wrong email address going to pop up? None of that on this computer. This is the first time I've ever done this. So um, last night I had the urge to act out. I thank God I didn't have that computer because I would have been on Eros getting an escort. So I'm laying in bed and I'm like, I'm feeling like I'm crawling out of my skin. And I'm like, it's not in your dick. Like you're not turned on. I don't have an erection. I'm laying there. It's in your stomach and your chest. So you feel the compulsion of it as opposed to the, to the sexual satisfaction of it. It was not a real sexual desire. It was a desire for something. You ever see In the Line of Fire? Of course. With Malkovich. One of the best lines ever that describes some type of addiction. It's clean specific on why are you doing this. And he said to punctuate the dreariness. And there are times where you're doing something just to feel something, to break through this blech, this nonsense or this fog. Sure. Sometimes just acting out punches through that but you but i think yes i completely agree and i think your body i you know we have a, a certain economy of energy you know that you, you we're not we're not we're not infinitely energetic right there's a certain there's a conservation of energy we have a certain amount of energy that we recycle throughout you know throughout our lives and throughout the day and and i think the older you get the more things you set on autoplay because then you don't have to think about them. So you start, you know, I think a compulsion starts as something like to punctuate the dreariness. And then it becomes an easy go-to. And then all of a sudden it's a habit. It's a pattern. Right. And so for you to be able to recognize, oh, this isn't a real – most of the time you go, oh, this is a real directive that my brain is sending out and I have to respond to it because this is a real thing. But to even be able to say – this is a this is a separate mechanism that's not what I think it is, and I recognize it as a, that alone is so empowering and can stop you probably from engaging in that most of the time, just even knowing that that's just something firing in a pattern. Yeah, it does help to be able to recognize it, to think it through. Because what happens is the distraction comes. Once I'm in that mode, I can't concentrate, I can't read. Uh, I'm trying to read books. I mean, I had, had, how do you say his name? Chris Haddonfeld? Hadfield. Hadfield, sorry. Yeah, he, he had a great book, uh, Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth, and I read a piece of it, um, but I couldn't get through it because I'm busy. Uh, we were interviewing Johnny Rotten at the end of the month. And, well, <laughs> I, well, you know, he's a, an interesting guy. His book is actually great, but I can't get through more than three pages without going on the phone. It's this constant... Last night, because it started again because of this, I just kept checking the phone. Is that next text? I'm trying to watch a, I know the chess thing, we talked about chess, was uh, Anand and Carlson played this match. So I just like to watch the, the, the analysis of it. And I don't, I mean, I get it, but I can't comprehend why. It's just fun to watch. It's like somebody run, watching them run real fast. Yeah. I know how they do it. Their legs are moving. <laughs> but I can't do it. 
<laughs> you know, but I enjoy watching analysis of chess games. I really love it. Uh, there's one guy who does brilliant ones. I think he's on chess.com, but I hate the way he says pawn because he goes the pawn. He moved his pawn this way, and I want to fucking pull my hair out. <laughs> it's a pawn. It's a pawn. It's not a pawn. But uh, I was in doing that, but I couldn't even enjoy it. I kept pausing and going back to the phone and seeing. And today I feel a little bit better. I feel like, okay, you, you just breathe easy and don't do it. But it's such a companion. I want to know, like you said, it's firing automatically. What's it like? Yeah, I know. I know it's hard, and I know that you know. I mean, it's it's good. And a lot of times, it starts with that question of like, well, what if I didn't? What would that be like? It just becomes from getting curious, as opposed to, I think a lot of times when people are trying to tackle addiction, they go, God damn it, I need to, I should do this, and I'm a fucking moron because I have a. And then once you once you have that self talk going. Then you're beating yourself up. And then, you, then, then, of course, what are you going to want to do? Well, now I want to do the thing because I want to feel better. You know yeah. what I mean? Like it's, I've already called myself a piece of shit, so I don't have enough worth. I might as well just do this thing. But I think if there are places where you can uh, reassign the empowerment, the inciting empowerment moment, as opposed to I can go get an escort or I can do this, but going, hey, I could do this and I didn't. Like that's that all of a sudden you start becoming weirdly – Addicted to like, oh, I'm I'm making a powerful choice for myself. Those small victory moments you get addicted. Yeah, to. the small victory moments you get addicted to, and obviously, addiction should ultimately, you know, you got to look under the hood and figure out why you have those. But, but I think it in the process, it's sort of better to kind of help reassign some of those mechanisms into things that are a little more constructive. I mean, like, I mean, I I am telling you, as someone who's been through addiction, the fact that you. Have been have been five or six days in, and you had opportunities, and you didn't do it, and you're alone, and you're in another town, and you're like, that's really great. You should really, you should really be giving yourself credit for getting past that. And every day that you do is another, you know. I texted a couple of guys I know who are sober in certain sex programs, and it helped a little bit, you know, just to chat with them briefly. You know, um, I just, I'm just sick of it, man. It's like I'm 46 years old, and I feel. It's enough already. Stop it. <laughs> cut, the, cut the nonsense, Jim. You know? That sort of, sort of reminds me of the Louis joke where he's like, I think he's jerking off in a closet or whatever. And he's like, when is this going to end? I got to get to work. Why am I still doing this? You know, it's just that moment of, you know, hopefully age and experience and wisdom starts to kick in. And you're like, I just. I got other stuff to do. You it's know. too much. It's too much. And you don't feel good anymore. It, like, I would feel good. I would have somebody come over. I would spend like $500, not even get what I wanted. And then a few hours later, I just want to do it again. I had already come, and it didn't matter. I still wanted to act up again. I wasn't turned on. Again, physically, my body was feeling nothing. Zero turn on. But that just that drug again, you got to get it again. So I'm sending girls money just for sending me dirty pictures or all this stuff. And it's like, I, I can get dirty pictures for free everywhere. It's not about that. It's about spending the money. Right. It's about the act of doing it. It's like gamblers. I'm, thank God I don't gamble. Because gamblers say it's not about winning. It's just about the act of trying it or taking the shot. Right. It's something about, you know, I would assume that, uh, you know, a chemical is being released. A specific ple- Dopamine, I think. Is being released whenever you are doing that thing. Yeah. And so that's the, oh, that's the exciting, oh, you know. Yeah, that buzz you get when you're rolling. Again, I watch gamblers. You know, I was in Vegas one time. And I, as a goof, I went downstairs. You know, they have those wheels like, the price is right wheel with the little dollar bills on it. Yeah. So I took a bucket, I threw it down. And uh, it turned around and it landed on 20 and I won 20 bucks and I walked away and I, the first thing I thought was I wish I had fucking put down 20 I won 400. 
And I thought at that moment, this is exactly what it is. Yeah, yeah, there you go. You recognize that that's a thing. This is how they get hooked because I'm not happy I won 20. And if I would have put down 20, I would have been like, why didn't you put down 100? You would have won 2,000 or 20,000 or whatever it would so I got it in that moment, like, man, stay away. This is a, you're a bad boy. You can't handle, <laughs> you can't handle gambling. It's good to recognize that. It's good to recognize that because you don't want to be replacing things with other things like right. that. I, but I, you reminded me, we were talking about chess, and I was just reading the story about, I think, the Chechnyan guy who got busted for uh, running to the – he. I think it was – could you look up uh, chess, uh, Chechnyan – I believe he was a Chechnyan guy. C H E C H and then space chess. Oh no, that'd be chess chess. <laughs> that wouldn't help. He's a Chechnyan, <laughs> but I. But he was a guy who uh, uh, had a bunch of titles, and his opponent noticed that he was going to the bathroom a lot during the match, and so they found they basically went into the bathroom and they found a phone wrapped in toilet tissue hidden in the toilet. And there was an account that was signed in to his account, and it was basically the game. Like the game was, be- he was playing the game through allegedly playing the game through a program, and going back and and they were you know, and they were saying, this is rampant now. This is this type of you know smartphone cheating. Georgia. Georgia. Okay, he was a. I'm sorry, he was a Georgian, a Georgian okay. chess player. Um, but. Uh, it, but that this is but there's this is just like a thing they have to deal with now in uh, in, in international chess circles that people are just going to cheat with their phones. But how how do you stop that? Like there has to be a way to electronically monitor or just search you. They have to be able to search you or walk through an airport screener before you walk into the chess room and the bathroom is in the chess room, so it's an impossibility. That's the only way to do it. They'll eventually start screening them like at an airport. Well, yeah, or um, you know, making sure that the bathroom that making sure that everything they do during a match is a controlled environment, you know? Right. Um, because obviously, you know, it doesn't really matter. Like, once the match starts, then then that's that's where it can really go sideways. So maybe, you know, maybe you're only allowed so many bathroom breaks or maybe the bathrooms are monitored and you have to, you know, the bathrooms are swept for devices. Yeah, you know, exactly. Who fucking knows? Well, you have to keep your hands above the stall while you <laughs> shit. <laughs> but doesn't that make you appreciate Bobby Fischer more and, and those, those guys that came before? Because as much as like, you know, I know like Carlson and, you know, Kasparov and Kramnik, they all have higher ratings than Bobby Fischer. But I mean, doesn't it like what he, the guy did, he just in Washington Square Park with a book and like, you know, doing magnetic chess piece demonstrations like there was no computer training yeah. back in the 50s. Like, that to me makes him such a more amazing guy than Absolutely. all these guys. Did you see the uh, – I, I sort of went down a chess rabbit hole the other day. And have you heard of a device called the Turk, the Mechanical Turk? Mm-mm. There was a device in the late 18th century, and, it, and, and, and I think it, the last one disappeared in the mid-1800s. But it was basically really fucking creepy looking. But it was a mechanical guy at a desk. And it was supposedly this, you know, mechanical marvel at the time. But this essentially robot would play chess against you. And apparently he beat every, you know, he beat Napoleon. This machine beat everything. And what they figured out was that um, 
it was just a guy hiding in a desk. There were they just had different masters hiding in this this desk, and I guess so awesome. no one no one figured it out. But the way that the thing worked, you could see some exposed machinery, and then there was a guy inside with a candle, and it was it was rigged so that he could breathe. And you know when he would move his, then the you know the arm would move and pick up the piece and move it, and it would make this clink 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 clink. Like it's really they're really and some a guy reconstructed one, and it's really fascinating and and it's so creepy, but it's funny that you know that at the time no one was like oh there's probably a guy in there they were just like wow I guess someone built a chess robot. Do you know how many embarrassing conversations or things that guy must have heard? People not real. I think Napoleon's mumbling how fat Josephine is getting. <laughs> wow, that's pretty. That's, that's awesome. Because the computers, you know, it's funny. These guys are so good because that's like, I guess there's a certain level you can hit, but I think now they say the computers do beat the, the even the, the grandmasters. Um, I don't know if they can beat Carlson or if they can beat, you know, the top five guy. Avishyanand annoys me. Like, I know he's such a great player, but every game I watch, just Carlson is kicking the shit out of him. It's like, can you beat this kid once? What are you doing, Vishy? Choking. Have Fuck you. Have you ever had Carlson on the show? I've never met, to my knowledge, a grandmaster in chat. I would love to interview him. He um, he retweeted me once, which I was very happy because I wrote him a tweet. I'm like, I like to. Is it bad that I call the knights uh, horses? And he wrote me back some <laughs> comment about how chess is probably not my gift. I was just so happy that he acknowledged me. Oh, I'd love to talk to him. That's really funny. Yeah, he there was a there was a minute where he was going to come on the podcast, and then his plan his plans changed, and he ended up not coming to Los Angeles. But uh, but I, I did a little digging, and, and I, think, I think he's become a little bit of a handful over the past couple of years. Oh, difficulty? Yeah. Well, when you're, you know, they're calling him the Mozart of chess. I mean, whenever you're the Mozart of anything, you're probably going to get a little, <laughs> a little cocky. I mean, maybe you will. You know, and he's a model, so girls like him. Like, he's not what we think of as a chess nerd. Like, hey, look at Dork. Let's knock his glasses off. This is a guy who's out modeling clothes, and, you know, he's like an alpha chess guy. He's a, he was invented in a laboratory somewhere. He, yeah, 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 yeah. He's Rocky Fours, yeah, so, you know, he's me, me. Dolph Lundgren. <laughs> he's, a, he's the Dolph Lundgren of yes, Mozart's of chess. Yes, he's the Drago of chess. <laughs> you know, but I, that's a guy I'd love to meet. I'd like to interview any of them. There's a there's a black guy who's a, a GM too. I think he's uh, oh, I forget his name, but I would I, I want to say he's from New York. I would love to. to Maurice uh, Maurice Ashley is it Maurice Ashley? I don't remember his name, but any of those guys. He, I think he's an American, so I'd, I'd like to talk to him. I almost you know maybe in a way I kind of understand why. I mean, if you're if you're Magnus Carlson. And you operate – I mean, clearly his brain operates operates computationally above 99% of the people on the sure. planet. So it, it, I, would, I would almost wonder if his daily life is essentially just like talking to school children all day. And that you would kind of go a little crazy like, hey, yeah, just I, – you, yeah, I know you don't understand. But, you know, like I almost – maybe I almost kind of like would give the guy leeway. Like, you know, in his case – it's, it's, I get it. Yeah. He probably t- talked to him about chess at least. But other stuff, even though he's a really smart guy, there's got to be something he just stinks at. That the, and I would love to know what that is. There's something he stinks at. The javelin? He's probably but, not yeah, good at yeah, that. Yeah, maybe physically he's not free, that good. Free diving? Maybe he's not a good free diver. <laughs> uh, we'll find it. Yeah, he keeps forgetting to make sure there's water in the pool. They're We're like, going to find your hole, Carlson. <laughs> that sounded bad. <laughs> you know what I meant. We're coming for you. How heartbroken were you when he? Didn't, I I hear though he backs out of a lot of press, but again he may get other press and 
he's probably arrogant as he should be. I mean, it's hard. you have to be arrogant to sit across from a guy who's almost as smart as you are and who can beat you because any of those guys can beat each other. But to sit across from that guy, Bobby Fischer was a liar. He said, I don't believe in psychology. I believe in making good moves. Bullshit. You believe in psychology. Well, you right? have to. You cannot, you can't not play chess and understand. I mean, like, because that's part of how you, it's not just the mechanical game of going, you move here, I move here. Like, you have to take into account the other person's state of mind, where they're at, what types of choices they normally make, maybe what. I mean, there's so many other things that you have to take into account when you're, that's why I can't really play anymore. It's too overwhelming for me now. I could never play on that level. Like, you were a tournament guy. I never went that far. I just love it and enjoy it. And, uh, like, I, I'm obsessed with old Fisher interviews. Like, I, this one he did in a park where he was just sitting on a bench and he's just so cocky <laughs> talking about Spassky. And I was amazed by that. I, it's only like a two minute clip and I want the whole interview. It's, I really can't find it. But it's so interesting because the, the guys talk about, are you scared of Spassky? And, uh, and he's going, I'm not scared of Spassky. He's scared of me. And it was so interesting to hear this. He was still a challenger and he meant it. Like the, the ability to be that confident about something so high level and so high pressure and so hard to do is what makes all of those guys awe-inspiring. But is it any different than what... I mean, I understand the mechanics are different, but is is it any different than what you do in terms of, you know, if someone's like, wow, you know, Jim, before he went on stage, he just seemed so sure of himself. I don't know. I mean, I don't know how anyone could get up there and be like, yeah, what, what's the, I'm doing stand-up. This is what I do. What, what are you talking about? Why is that hard? It's not hard. I mean, I do it, you know? But can you imagine if they put you against David Tell and they said, <laughs> okay, you and Dave are going on stage now, and you, but you meant it, and you go like, I'm not scared of it. Tell him my jokes are better than his, and he knows that, and I know that. And like, people go, like, I wouldn't what are you? say that, yeah. That's, that's what I mean. That's okay. the amazing part. No, I understand that. It's just this, uh, the one interview that I found of Carlson was, was written... And, you know, who knows? I wasn't there. I don't know the guy. I don't know the guy who wrote the article. But it was written from the point of view of a guy who was a, a reporter who was a fan of his that essentially kind of had his heart broken because Carlson was kind of dismissive of him in an interview. Sure. And in every – but, you know, again, like I, I'm always willing to give people the benefit of the doubt on both sides. But uh, I don't know. When I, when I, when I read that and uh, it, it kind of made me feel like – Oh, now I really want to get him on. Now I really want to get him on the show. So, I don't know. It'll probably never happen. I wouldn't care if he was a jerk. There are guys that would hurt me if they were jerks. Musicians, guys that I've, I, I, I've idolized for a different reason. But a guy like Magnus Carlsen or, again, uh, Kasparov or any of those guys, if they were dicks, I'd be okay with it. Because that's such a different mentality than anything creative. So I can't. I don't know what you're supposed to be like when you're that bright and that good at like. Can, I can, can you see a chessboard in your mind? I can't. There's a scene in Searching for Bobby Fischer, which Bobby Fischer was not pleased at all. They didn't even give me any fucking money for that. <laughs> I love that movie though. I, I did too. Where he where he knocks all the pieces off the board yeah. and he says like, "Okay, Josh, now yeah. like he makes the kid yeah. envision the game." Can you see it? No. Well, how about now? And uh, he's actually coming to the comedy cellar too, Josh Waitzkin. He's, uh, I heard he never even got GM. He, he's like a master level player, but he, never, he was never the guy that they thought he would be. Oh, really? He was a great player, but not like, you know, uh, a world champion great. But I can never see the board like that. I just can't do it. I mean, my mind doesn't work that way. I envy people who can. I envy a guy who can work a whole chess board out, a game and is, have zero comprehension to do that. Yeah, when, when you, it, it is sort of like watching. Uh, you know, when it's that scene in Amadeus where Salieri is talking about how he's basically slowly killing Mozart, but then Mozart is writing his own requiem while he's slowly killing him. And he's like, he's like, he's saying that Mozart's just like laying out all the notes and he's like, it's like, it's like, it's like he's, it's like dictation. And when you can hear someone talk about a chess game and they go, you know, they can, 
they mat they say it out loud, but they do all the notation. They're like E two four D T seventy five. Like when they do all that shit, yeah. that that kind of blows me away. That's like, oh, you're just saying notes. You're just yeah. saying music notes yeah. now. <laughs> but to them, it's as easy as, as as you or I memorizing material. Like, but they're doing it every day with a chat. Like when I, I watch them do that, and and they always say take. Like uh, I've watched Anand do it. He'll be like, you know, uh, you know, uh, Pondy seven take, uh, ninety five take. And uh, to watch them roll through that and to know that they know what it means. Like they understand completely every single thing they're saying. Where I could, I could maybe memorize a game and parrot a game, but I wouldn't comprehend the implications of each one in depth. Right. You know what I mean? I might know like, don't leave the queen there, but that's as far <laughs> as, you know what I mean? I have like Davy and Goliath speak when I talk about chess, but for them to have the ability to do that, I just, I want to meet any of them. All those I, I've read a book about like Judith Polgar and all these fucking chess players. They're fascinating to me, uh, I, even though they're probably boring to most people. I could read about just chess players and what they're like uh, more than comedians. Even. I bet you could get them to open up. I mean, you 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 know, I mean, you could, you could, you could. I don't see any reason why you couldn't have your own little chess corner on the show. I think people would dig it. I think there are more people that are into it than you know than you think of as being into it. Especially in New York, you know, it's like it's such a subculture. I mean, there's a that whole fucking that uh, w- w- what street is it that has all that had all the chess shops on it? It's off. It's between McDougal and Bleecker. It's Thompson. I Thompson. think it's Thompson. Yeah, there's fucking like one of them closed. One yeah. couple of them closed. Yes, but but you know, like you you pay five bucks and you go and you play. Like they, the streets were lined with fucking chess clubs. Like how are these chess clubs staying open in New York in this part of town? Uh, and I think there's only maybe one or two left now. Yeah, I think the online players hurt a lot of it too. People can just play on their phones. I have chess with friends on my phone. It's awesome. I play with my buddies. I play with fans. You know what I mean? Um, you know, it, it's just fun to have it available. I haven't played on a regular chess board in, in probably a year. Oh, wow. Maybe more. I kind of miss that. Don't you love watching like a guy when you watch video of a chess player. I love watching a guy who knows how to handle the pieces. Like when you watch Kasparov put the pieces down the way they flip the pieces and they hold, it's really graceful <laughs> to watch them throw the pieces. And I just realized you'll never even be good at that. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you could just focus on that. Yeah. You could just focus on figuring out how to manipulate the pieces. Well, when we, uh, when I was just performing in, in Wisconsin, uh, there was a guy in the audience. His name also happens to be Chris Hardwick. And for the longest time, he was above me in Google searches because he is a world champion Rubik's Cube guy. Oh, wow. And he solves, you know, he solves regular cubes. He solves the four by fours. He solves these crazy theoretical mathematical cubes like where it's like you use math to solve, you know, a cube with right. a many, 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 many sides. And, uh, and so he, um, he, I brought him on stage and he, he brought a cube with him. And I have video of him solving it in 19. I mixed it up and he solved it in 19 seconds. But watching the way his fingers, like, and I used to like crank that thing around, but every finger was, was moving like an, like an octopus limb. I right. mean, it was fucking, I'll show you the video, but it was gorgeous. 19 seconds. 19 seconds. I have one from 1980. I still only have two blue squares on one side. <laughs> An impossibility. The, you know what someone told me too about chess? And I read this, I think. that the, there are, the, the question was, are there more like atoms in the universe or possible chess moves. And there are more possible chess moves than there are atoms in the known universe. Wow. About, I guess, I forget what it is squared. When you think about it, like, yeah, I guess a chess game can technically go on forever. Sure. And each possibility multiplies. It's like, you know, you take a penny on the first day of the month. If you double it every day, you have over a million dollars. Right. 
I just uh, that's as far as I go with math. Is just to, to, <laughs> I, I spit out something like that. I really don't know what it means. I just go, that's a lot, and that's as far as I can go. <laughs> that's a big bunch. Maybe there's a maybe there's a chess angle for your book or something. Maybe there's some like without being so literal on the nose, right. chess, but just something about you know. Yeah. Maybe there's something about your life that is reflected in. In this, you know, uh, in, in this finite space of seemingly infinite possibilities, like like the fact that I sleep with a lot of women who have the a lot of queens who have the genitals of kings. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's kind of you know, it's, it's, it sort of writes itself. But I think you know, I think things get really interesting when you start applying. A sensibility to a seemingly unrelated thing, right? And seeing, you know, like hearing your sensibility, your the lens of Jim Norton fired at chess is really interesting to me because you're passionate about it, and people are people always get really interesting when they talk about what they're passionate about. I don't know. I just think maybe there's something that could I think there could be something there. Wouldn't you love to play one of those guys? I would love to play so because of course you'd be massacred, but just <laughs> to, to do it. Seconds. But just to watch, like, how long did Bill Gates last? Like nine moves with Magnus Carlsen, and I know I could outlast Bill Gates. I mean, right. I, I, I might go not many more, but it'd be fun <laughs> just to watch a guy that good destroy you and, yeah. ha- and have it like, was it annotated? And you know, that's, that's what I want to do. You feel bad and apologetic. I'm like, I know this, I know you didn't need to get out of bed for this. Yeah. Uh, but to me, this was a, yeah, I re- I'm positive. I told you this the last time you were on, but one of the, one of the tournaments I was at when I was a kid was in uh, uh, Crossville, Tennessee. And there was a grandmaster there and I can't remember his name. Of course it was a big deal. This grandmaster. Sure. Was and he set up uh, uh, 25 boards. Uh, it was 50, 50 boards, 25 on each side, so he could walk through the middle of them. And he played 50 games simultaneously, and he just walked down the line right. and just moved and hit the clock and moved and hit the clock. Uh, and of course, I and of course I lost. And then there was a uh, there was a uh, there were two uh, Chinese children in the school that I went to in Memphis. They were brother and sister. They both skipped many grades. This kid's name was Oliver Ty, and when he was nine years old, he fucking beat the guy. Out of, it was he was one out of fifty, but he still. And the fun, the fun thing about watching it was, you know, this this grandmaster is walking up and down the aisle very much by rote, you know, like, and then watching him reflexively start to move past Oliver's board and take the next step, and then stopping. And refocusing and having to pay attention to the game. It was such a wonderful. And he resigned. I don't remember. Maybe he did. I mean, wow. I was ten, eleven. Right. Uh, but I, but it was a big fucking. It was a big fucking deal. Like it was a really big. It was a really big deal. And the fact that I really did just ask an irrelevant question. You're telling the story, and I. What kind of car did the GM drive? Say <laughs> <laughs> <Hey>, stupid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> There was this video of uh, Carlson uh, playing to a draw with Kasparov when he was uh, thirteen. He played him, and he and he and he had, and Gary Kasparov was not happy at all. You could see no. he gets up and he's pretty disgusted. But yeah, I, I would love to play one of those guys. It's just kind of fun to, to to do it. I've never done it. You I know, just play Keith Robinson, comedians I know. And I'll see. tell you what, though, you know, as much peacocking as there is in you know. Uh, uh, sports, you know, like wrestling, whatever, you know, like watching chess players really the psychological warfare. I just feel like it's it's devastating because it's such a deep, 
you know, their, their egos are so attached to this thing that is all about their brain and all about how, I mean, it's, I mean, I would imagine if you are on top and then you start to lose a lot, that it's like, I, I, I'm sure some guys just don't recover from it. Yeah, or if you get knocked down in the ratings, because now Anand is number six in the world rankings, and he was you know, number one for a while, and then number two. And like, I wonder how that bothers you to go from like a certain number down to 10, and you realize, well, there's a lot of guys better than me now. Right. That's got to be, because there's a definite way of judging it. Which there's was, no, it's not like comedy. It's like, yeah. well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I think you could say, you know, Yes, Phyllis, yeah, yeah. There are some guys who are better, but then other times, like, well, it's kind of subjective, like yeah. whatever you like. There's, it's not subjective. No, you win or you lose. The end. Here's your rating. Here's your ranking, and this is it. There's no ambiguity in it whatsoever. And then I wonder if guys on top. Uh, this would be a question for Carlson. I wonder if guys on top start to get that thing where they want to take less risks. You know, it's like, well, now you're on top. You know, right. like, do you want to? It's sort of like a boxer thing where it's like, well, maybe I don't want to defend my title as much because I got it and I don't want to risk losing it. You know, I don't know. You know, do they get do they get um, uh, superstitious or to like what what happens when you get to that point? Yeah, I wonder if that's why uh, I, I I never know if his name is Kaspar or Kasparov. So I go back and forth. If he, I've heard different pronunciations. I've, when I was a kid, I heard Gary Kasparov. Yeah, I heard that too. But, but I don't. But that could just be an American. Yeah, it's, uh, version yes. Of it. Fisher's name for him was not good. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was not an affectionate term at all. <laughs> and um, Boris Spassky was the other guy, of course, that got thrown around a lot. Yeah, oh, Spassky. Sure, my 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 cousin George gave me Fisher versus Spassky when I was a kid. The book. Um, and he explained to me how important Bobby was and what an American hero he was. So I guess that's why even when he went crazy later in life and you know started hating Jews, even though he was 100% Jewish, he just lost his mind. You know, there's sometimes a price to pay with that kind of brilliance. You know, with Richard Pryor, it was he's an alcoholic and he set himself on fire and he did all this crazy shit. With Fisher, he went. You know. He I mean, went uh, ballistic. In br- brilliance plus pressure. Ah, yeah, yeah, pressure too. Right, right, exactly. I forget that. It's not just Einstein alone. It's you know, it's there's the whole world watching you and people competing with you and coming after you. I know I just mentioned Einstein. He has nothing to do with talking about. <laughs> I just wanted to mention another smart person. So people would associate me with them. But you know, I mean, I think in a lot of cases, you know, maybe these guys had some. Maybe they had some baggage going into these uh, into these situations. You know, I, yeah, I don't know why I'm assuming that they were all emotionally healthy. I know Pryor was sexually abused and his mother was a prostitute, so I already know his baggage. But who knows? Maybe Fisher had some weird stuff too. He was going. Uh, who's that? You ever see that reporter, Jeremy Shat or Shot? And uh, he confronts Fisher in Japan at the airport or whatever it is, or in uh, Iceland, and he goes, "You know, my father." Uh, used to take you to games, and 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 Fisher goes, yeah, he was his father was a Jewish snake, and was, it's a Ugh. really awkward in front of all these reporters, a very uncomfortable moment, and uh, you could see that this reporter got to Fisher, he got to him. this is when he had the beard, and he was just you know, oh, just like checked out, checked out, man. <laughs> this was a few, he wouldn't you know a few years before he he died. So don't search too much for Bobby Fisher. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because they found him and boy, did he have a lot to say. <laughs> it was so much better when he was lost. But this is why I think, you know, I mean, this is why I think it's good that, you know, you're you're trying to tackle this stuff now and you know, you, you'll you still have a long life. Like, you know, don't you know, like, take care of this shit now because nothing else that happens is, you know, except for the choices that you make about yourself are going to make your life Better or where it's just like 
you're still you at the core of it. So, you know, just be nice to yourself. That's I hope so. I hope you're right, Chris. <laughs> I, hope I hope so. so. I hope I have a lot of years left. I hope, uh, I hope you come back on At Midnight soon because you always do a great job on the show. Thank you, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I came into town too late this time, but uh, I love that show. And the, the, it's amazing how Twitter, man, what a following you have, blows up. It's great to do something and go like, wow, this really does mean something because everyone's responding to it. It's yeah, great. yeah. It's nice because we don't, you know, it's like... You, you, we, it, being able to go on TV as a comic and not burn through material is really, oh, is really awesome. It's really nice. Awesome. And still get to be you and you know, like funny and but not like, well, I gotta go and I gotta go write another hour again. Yeah, I mean, you're probably in that mode, right? Are you already have you already written the next hour? I'm not an hour in. I taped it at the end of January. I'm about thirty new minutes that I'm happy with. Yeah. Um, so it comes out the 24th So that's about a week So I will have to take what I got now And kind of go on the road with say 30 new minutes Yeah and then find the rest along Yeah the and way. I'll find it but I mean uh, I, I won't do like I open with Cosby material I won't do that on the road anymore You know what I mean because right. like, that's just too specific So there's plenty of fuck jokes I can pull out That I have not burned <laughs> on television yet I'm glad that um, people are More Comfortable now, kind of ridiculing him. Oh God, yeah. Because I, because in the beginning, the first couple times people made Cosby jokes on the show, people were like, "I can't believe you think that's funny." And like, no, 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 no. As comics, we can't go punch people in the face. The only thing we can do is emotionally cut at them. Sure. Like you have to to ridicule someone is you like that that brings them down. Like we need to bring people down. Yeah. And I always want to say to people like, "Did you ever use Hitler as a punchline?" Uh, oh, okay. So you think genocide is funny? Like right. it's like no, you ridicule. You have to, you know, Mel Brooks. You have to ridicule these people because it gives you it gives you power and it and it depowers them. Yeah, and these people need to be depowered. Yeah, a lot of them do. So uh, anyway, uh, I'm glad that you're back, and I hope you have a safe trip home, and we'll see you on the show soon. And uh, pl- plug, plug away, plug Thank away you, whatever buddy. you want to plug. Just contextually inadequate is the special. It comes out the 24th on Epics and EpicsHD.com, and in three months it'll be on Netflix. I hope people like it. Excellent. Thanks, Jim Norton. Thanks, buddy. Enjoy your burrito, everyone. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now, I'm coming back as a judge, and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully, no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.